for this morning, which comes to us again from 2 Timothy, this time chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Jonas and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as it was that of those two men. Thank you. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we have a, a hard passage in front of us today. And we know that nothing is too difficult for you. We know that your Holy Spirit is our teacher. And so we ask you, in the name of Jesus, to enliven your spirit within us. May he move in our midst. May he convict us of our sins. Show us the beauty of the gospel and our Savior. And draw us to you, whether we know you or we don't. Whether we are alive in Christ or still dead in our sins. Holy Spirit, have your way in this place with these people to the praise of your glorious grace. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, chapter 3, we start today and quickly we'll take another glance at where we've been so far in this letter. Quick recap. It seems like maybe not necessary to say it, but... Paul is writing to Timothy, Paul's spiritual son, his first place disciple, not necessarily his first in time, but his first in his heart. And Paul is calling Timothy to action in this time when Paul, who is in prison in Rome, awaiting execution and is about to depart his earthly tent, as he would put it. And this action that Paul's calling Timothy to is to teach, preach, and embody the sound doctrine, the teaching that has been passed from Paul to Timothy to exhort the people of God and to preach that gospel as delivered to Paul by Christ himself. Paul is calling on Timothy to purify himself, to exhort the people of God and handle the word of God accurately and powerfully. (laughs) He's reminded Timothy that God is building his church and the people of God will pursue holiness, cleansing themselves and making themselves ready for God to use them. And he has said all through this letter, so far, 
that it isn't going to be easy. And we're going to see more of the same today. So he begins to reiterate that not easiness here at the outset of what we call chapter 3. And we'll start at verse 1. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. So the first word here is but. So there's a contrast. That is a contrastive conjunction. We had finished chapter 2 last week with Paul calling on Timothy to cleanse himself and be holy so that he's ready for God to use him. But, then, is in contrast to that. There's a call to holiness for the people of God. But, understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Paul's going to, in this passage today, uh, go on to describe people who are not holy. And as we'll see, who are not, in fact, God's people, even though they give an appearance of being so. So, they will be the contrast to this holy, ready vessel. And the call to attention here is to make sure that Timothy is clear about what Paul's about to say. God is building his church and calling his people to holiness, but understand this. And that understand this is a way of kind of grabbing him by the shoulders and saying, pay a special close attention to what I'm about to say. Understand this. It's not going to be easy. I'm calling you to holiness. We're calling the people of God to holiness. But understand this. It's going to be tough. Now, know that here in this verse, the last days, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, Paul's not pointing to a future time. Okay? This is not a prophecy about eschatological things, but a call to action in the present. Peter had said in his Acts 2 sermon, when the Spirit first fell, Peter said in Acts 2 that Joel had prophesied about the Spirit being poured out on all flesh in the last days. And basically, Peter says there in Acts 2, this that you see on the day of Pentecost was that. It was God pouring out His Spirit on all flesh in the last days. So, the last days started after Jesus' ascension and the coming of the Holy Spirit. These are the last days, starting from there. Okay? So, Paul's reference to difficult times coming in the last days is like him saying that these difficulties are in his days, this day. Understand this, Timothy, that difficult days are here. And what remains going forward is going to be difficult days. You're like, dude, this is a bummer. Come on, stay with me. Timothy, there will come times of difficulty starting yesterday. The word difficulty means perilous, hard to do or to take, troublesome, dangerous. These days are going to be difficult. Well, so verses 2 to 5 really spell this out. Let's look at those as we move forward. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power 
avoid such people. It's like Paul's looking around the room there in the prison and saying, well, that guy's this and that guy's this and that guy's this. And the money just, he, he makes this long list of what people in the last days will be like. And he comes up with 19 things. Thanks for that, Paul. I mean, he could have stopped at like three or four, right? But the Holy Spirit, who was inspiring this letter, wanted us to see 19 things. One nine. Not just nine. Difficult times are here, and they're here to stay, and they're coming. Why? For. Because difficult times are coming for people. Yeah, I feel that. (laughs) How about you? The problem is going to be people. Times will be difficult because of people. And people will be something, or actually some things, these 19 items. And we won't spend, I, I, I debate, you bunch them up. You cover, I'm, we're going to go through them one at a time quickly. We're not going to spend a lot of time on each of them. But I want you to see what Paul's sketching out in these 19 descriptors. So people will be, I'm going to read them all together one more time, then we'll go back through them. Lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. So, let's start with the first one. Lovers of self. People will be, in these difficult times, lovers of of self. Well, it makes sense that this is what Paul leads with, right? In this portrait of people who make things difficult, the first descriptor is that they're lovers of self. Newsflash. We are, all of us, infected with the disease of self. And these people are first and foremost given to self While the command of Christ to his disciples is to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him, these folks focus on themselves as a matter of first importance. Me, me, wonderful me. The Greek word for lovers of self is philautos. And it means too intent on one's interest, or to put it simply, it means selfish. You are so selfish. Yes, but I have all the strawberries. Some of y'all get that. I'll explain it later to the others. Selfish people make for difficult times for those who are doing gospel work. For a lot of reasons. As the very nature of the gospel is to bring new life and to conform people to the image of Christ, the gospel strikes at the heart of self-love. Now, it is imperative that those who are God's people love even themselves, but their love is to be Godward first and toward others second. Love God And love your neighbor as yourself. We don't have a problem loving ourselves. Not me, I hate myself. That's self-love. That's drawing attention to yourself. Poor, poor, pitiful me. 
Not me, I hate myself. That means you love yourself because you're focused on yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. He didn't say love your neighbor as yourself if you love yourself. He said love your neighbor as yourself. So our our love is to be directed first to God, second to others as we love ourselves. Those who are known to be lovers of self, well, they just make things difficult for themselves and others. So what else are these people like? They're lovers of money. Again, how very appropriate that after self-love, these people love money. When people are selfishly seeking money for themselves and their pleasure, things and times are difficult for gospel ministry. Can I get an amen? You don't have to. I just wanted to say that. Paul had already told Timothy that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil back in 1 Timothy 6.10, many a few months ago. But here he embodies that to show how that looks in real life. Things are tough for those preaching pure doctrine in the last days because self-loving people love money. And that root of loving money is producing rotten fruit in the lives of these people, infecting themselves and all those around them. Now, Jesus was very clear in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, 24, when he said, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. It's not that you shouldn't. It's that you can't. Period. And that makes things difficult, right? Because who doesn't have a little bit of love of money in their heart somewhere? Anybody in here hate money? That's what I thought. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money. Next, they will be proud. The word here means one who believes everything they've accomplished is because of their own ability. It's literally translated as an empty pretender. Well, we know for sure that God is focused on whose glory? His own. God is focused on His own glory. So proud people make gospel ministry difficult. Proud people can never even come to God because, again, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said it is the poor in spirit, the crouching beggar who has only empty hands to be filled that can receive the kingdom of heaven as a gift of God's grace. So proud people make gospel ministry difficult. Next one's very similar, going hand in hand with proud. They're also arrogant. Where proud or pride exalts self, arrogant people demean others compared to themselves. Arrogant people look down their noses at the poor, pitiful peasants who could never be as good as themselves. Hard to love my neighbor when I feel contempt for him for not being as awesome as me, isn't it? And I'd say we all have been probably still are, and we definitely still know some arrogant people. The gospel bleeds this out of us, praise God. Wait, am I being arrogant about difficult people? It sneaks in really quick, right? It's tricky. And unfortunately, that makes things difficult as well. Next, they're abusive. Interestingly, this word is blasphemous. It means speaking evil, reproachful, railing. And I think we might be tempted to just think of abusive as physically harming, which that is abusive for sure. 
But this word shows that our words are weapons. If blasphemos means speaking evil, abusive means that our words are weapons. And these people wield those words with malicious intent, harming those they are talking about. People who speak harsh words to and about others make things difficult, don't they? Don't we? Next one's interesting. Disobedient to their parents. Hmm. Now how about that? In a list of characteristics of difficulties in the last days, disobedient to their parents is right there. Let me ask you this. Anybody ever been disobedient to your parents? Let me ask it a different way. Anybody ever not been disobedient to their parents? Is there anybody here who's never been disobedient to their parents? Hmm. You don't have to give yourselves up. and I won't call for hands or anything. I was disobedient to my parents some, a lot, more definitely than I should have been. I think that this being here shows a couple of things at least. First, a heart that doesn't submit to the authority of parental oversight is a dangerous heart. We learn submission and obedience in our homes first and foremost. A child who is disobedient becomes an adult who doesn't recognize authority. And we know who's the source of all authority, right? Matthew 28, Jesus said, All authority has been given to me. Romans tells us that there's no authority except from God. And so if I have as a child in my heart a railing at authority, especially toward my parents, I'm not going to love authority when I grow up. So that's the first thing. Second that I see here, disobedient children can make life really difficult, right? They can become the center of attention and just drain the life out of their parents. And that is tough for all involved, kids, parents, siblings, cousins, uncles, grandparents. It's not just the big people who need to obey the gospel. It's also the children. You're an important, hugely important piece of this puzzle, kids. And I'm so glad that you're in here every week to get gospel seed sown into your life. Learn to submit to your parents. Learn to love authority because in the last days, difficult times come because people are disobedient to their parents. Now let me say this. If you're not in your parents' household anymore, you don't have to obey them. But you are to honor them and the teaching that they've given you, and the upbringing that they've... So, so adults, this is not about you anymore, if you're out of your parents. Children, in your parents' house, it is for you, though, specifically. Next, ungrateful, mm. which is a good follow-up to disobedient to parents, right? But, of course, that's not the only thing in mind here. Ungrateful means you don't have an attitude of thankfulness for what has been given to you or done for you. Andrew Peterson has a song called, Don't You Want to Thank Someone for This? And his point in the song is, all of this. Don't you want to thank somebody for the green grass and the blue sky and spring? Don't you want to thank somebody for it? Because it's a beautiful, wonderful gift. Don't you just want to say thanks to somebody? Ungrateful people do not want to say thanks. This... uh, 
There's a G.K. Chesterton quote that, oddly enough, is written on the blackboard painted section of our bread box at home. I don't know where that dinosaur came from, but I don't think it was a part of the original composition. <laughs> Rawr. <laughs> but the quote says this. It's a good quote. Um, there it is. Thanks are the highest form of thought, and gratitude is happiness doubled by wonder. That's nice. And so what does that say for ungratefulness? Ungrateful people are not thankful, but feel entitled. They deserve any good that they receive. So who am I going to thank? Me, for being awesome. Because I deserve the green grass and the blue sky. Ungratefulness. And in the last days, people will be ungrateful, and it's going to make things tough for the gospel ministry. Back to verse 2. Unholy. Holiness is a little bit of a slippery term, I think. Holy means sinless. Holy means set apart for God. God himself is holy, 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 right? Well, unholy then would be sinful and not regarding God at all. These people Paul is these people Paul, these people Paul are describing here are sinful people as the other descriptors have already clearly shown, and they're not doing what they do for God. They are selfishly sinning, seeking their own good and preferences. And unholy people make teaching sound doctrine difficult. Next, heartless. You heartless wench. The Greek word for heart is stergo, and if you put an A before a Greek word, it makes it a negative. So the Greek word here is astorgos, astorgos. And it translates as without natural affection. Other definitions are unsociable or inhuman. Heartless people just don't care. I don't care is their motto. You're hurting? I don't care. You got needs? I don't care. You don't like me? Oh, I don't care. Difficult to deal with people who are heartless and who don't care. Unappeasable. This translates literally as incapable of gaining the goodwill of. These are people you just can't please. Y'all be careful. Don't look at nobody. You listen. Nothing that anyone says makes them go, oh, that's good. Negative Nancy, hateful Harry. I made the hateful Harry thing up myself. <laughs> Fill in a name. Jerky Jason. Ever hear somebody say they just can't please somebody else? I just can't please this person. That's what this is talking about. And to say the least, that makes things difficult, right? Slanderous. Now, we've seen this word a couple of times in our journey through the pastoral epistles. It's the Greek word diabolos, like diabolical, like devil, Satan. And it means false accuser. Slanderous people are always looking to speak evil of others whether their talk is true or false. 
And it's tough to be around people who are always talking bad about other people. You might even say it's difficult. Number 12, in case you lost track. Without self-control. Literal translation here is incontinent. Intemperate. These people blow their tops. They spout off. They speak or act rashly. And their excuse is what? Well, I couldn't help it. And you know what? They're right. Unfortunately, they couldn't help it. But that doesn't undo what they've done. And it doesn't make it any better. They can't help it because they are without self-control. By the way, self-control is part of the fruit of the Spirit. And people without self-control are difficult, for sure. Brutal. Translates as fierce, not tame, savage, or my favorite, feral. These are feral people. I know, right? That's funny. <laughs> Just see somebody like, <laughs> brutal. And actually, brutal is pretty clear and simple. Some people are just brutal. Goodness gracious. How in the world could you say that, think that, feel that, do that? Dude, that's just brutal. I would define 14-year-old me as brutal. It's hard to be around. I thought people liked me. But I was brutal. Said mean things. Did things for shock value. These people speak their minds and have no mercy, no grace, and they claim that if people can't handle the truth, well, then they probably don't need to be around me. And I say, amen. I don't need to be around you either. The difficulty level here is above my pay grade. Then, not loving good. These people are literally despisers of those that are good, opposed to goodness and good men. Read some news stories. You want to see some of these people. Of course, sometimes look in the mirror too. If something is good, well, they're just opposed to it. They just seem to be negative about every good thing. And they are truly difficult. What else describes them? Treacherous. Treacherous. Treachery is traitorous. Betraying behavior. Think Judas. They betray others for their own benefit or good. They kiss the master for 30 pieces of silver. And you never know when the other shoe drops with these folks. They're probably scheming about how to turn the tables at the time of their greatest advantage against you. You can't trust them. And that's difficult. For sure. And so are those who are reckless. That's a Yoda reference, by the way. You are reckless, he said to Luke. Reckless means to be marked by a lack of awareness or disregard for danger. The difficulty here is that this casting off of restraint makes these people not only dangerous to be around, but also frustrating because they don't heed advice or correction at all. Dude, you're, you shouldn't do that. Ah, it's fine. doesn't matter. Dude, you shouldn't be texting that woman. She's not your wife. It's fine. We're all right. No, no, dog, it ain't all right. Don't do it. Nah, I'm good. Yeah, talk to me in three months. Reckless, man. Don't be that because it's difficult. 
They don't heed advice or correction at all. Because next, they're swollen with conceit. Swollen with conceit. These folks done got swole, but not in a good way. Swollen with conceit is puffed up with pride. They're overinflated their opinion of themselves. They've pumped themselves up and are awfully high on themselves. They use the word I a lot. Well, then I told them, I showed them, I, I, I. That's pretty difficult to be around. Two more. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. That's one. Because it's a contrast. Earlier, these folks were said to love self and money. And now, after other descriptors, we get back to what they love. They love pleasure rather than God. Please, please me. Oh, yeah. They'd rather feel good than love God. If it feels good, do it. If it feels good to me, do it. And the contrast between loving pleasure and loving God shows that pleasure is king here. Pleasure is seated on the throne. God, who commands our greatest allegiance and affections, will not be relegated to second in line behind what feels good to us. And these lovers of pleasure have made their choice, and God is not that choice. They prefer pleasure to the very person of God. And in ministering to and serving with people, that makes things difficult. Because when it gets tough, no thanks. And it's going to be tough, right? Well, I like pleasure. I'm not worried about God. Difficult. One last one. Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Mm. Now, this is a biggie. It's like he, he wrapped the whole package up, put a bow on it, and said, here you go. And this verse unnerves me every time I see it. And it surely makes things difficult for God's people, for the gospel, for ministry, for serving with and for people, right? These people have the appearance of godliness. Oh, that's a godly person. But they deny its power. Now, what's that mean? Well, these people do religious things. They go to church. They do good deeds. They give. They pray. They talk the talk. But it's all selfishly motivated, as our list has shown today. It's all for their good, their power, their advantage. They appear, they look religious, but they deny any power that might actually change them or unseat their selfish passions. C.J. Ellicott called it a, quote, a kind of heathen, Christianity. And it's full of difficulty because ultimately you got a bunch of folks who claim to follow Jesus who are only following themselves and they look good doing it, good enough to fool themselves and so many of those watching them. And the only power they have is to feed the beast of self-indulgence. I don't go to church because of the hypocrites. You go to Walmart because there's some in there too. There's also pajama pants. On people, not on the road. 
If you wear pajama pants to Walmart, God bless you. I'm not going to do that. Arrogant, ain't I? Let's see this. I don't go to church because there's too many hypocrites. And you know what? They're right. It's true. And that makes things difficult. Very difficult for those who are interested in sharing the gospel. Preaching and teaching the whole truth. The the pure doctrine. The whole counsel of God. Because here's the problem. In the selfishness of these people, in their conceit, in their efforts to have power and influence, they don't just sit quiet in the congregations that they're in. They seek power. They seek fame. They seek adoration from others. And so they speak. They teach. They lead. They influence. And people love it. They're charismatic and appealing. They say the right things and they do the right things and it looks awfully good. So they get elevated to positions of leadership and influence and they're preaching the gospel of self. And here's the problem. It feels good and people love it. So they press on. And that makes gospel ministry incredibly difficult. Because somebody stands and says, wait a minute, no, wait a minute. We're supposed to deny ourselves. Deny ourselves? God gave us all things to enjoy. That's true. And he calls us to holiness. Oh, don't talk about holiness. That's a to-do list. Uh, And so they press on. Makes things difficult. Verses 6 and 7. For among them are those who creep into households and capture the weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Some of these people, some of these charismatic leaders, these out front guys who are preaching the gospel of self, it says here that among them are those who creep into households. Now that just feels yucky, doesn't it? It should. They slither their way in an effort to gain, to get more for themselves into households. They work their way into being welcomed into and celebrated in families and homes. And their goal is to do what? It's to capture. That's a war term, to take prisoners of war. And here it carries the connotation of capturing one's mind. It's what people start to read. It's what people start to listen to. It's what people start to say. And they're captured. Captivating someone for personal benefit. And who are they targeting? Weak women. The Greek word for weak women, I'm going to give this a shot. Gunahi carrion. Gunahi carry on. And it was a pejorative term to point out silly women. John Stott says they are the quote, idle, silly, and weak women. And these women are spiritually and intellectually disadvantaged. Now listen, ladies, it's not every woman that he's describing here. Someone said, this is what Paul thinks of women. It's not what Paul thinks of women. 
These women are spiritually and intellectually disadvantaged. Paul says they are burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. That's a spiritual problem. Guilty consciences and they're physically driven. Their past sins and their current passions have them bound up. Then Paul says they're always learning, these weak women are, and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. What a picture. They can tell you what the Scriptures say because it's in the book that they read that people wrote. They might even open their Bible and sit there and read and read and read and read and read and please continue to do that. But they can't see how it might help them. So physically, mentally, and spiritually, they're susceptible to some hot-shot, spiritual-looking fella or lady to swoop in and save them from their misery. And so this person stands up and they say, you deserve to feel good. And this poor, weak woman says, you're right, I do. And I'm so tired of feeling bad. And I've done so many bad things. And I'm so bad. No, honey, God loves you. Just the way you are. That's awesome. Tell me more. And the serpent continues to slither just like he did in the garden. Did God really say? Maybe he didn't. Maybe you're right. And these faux teacher leaders smell the blood in the water, target these weak women, and they sweep them off their feet and get them hook, line, sinker, bank account, and body, and all. That's who these people are. That's what they do. And yeah, it is difficult, to say the least. Verse 8. Just as Jonas and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. So Paul here refers back to the Exodus account that Andrew read this morning to draw a parallel to help describe these folks one last time today. He says they're opposing the truth. Now that's huge. They're opposing the truth just as Jonas and Jambres opposed Moses. He's referring to the magicians of Pharaoh's court who performed these false signs to mirror God's mighty deeds up to a certain point in the narrative. Now the names Jonas and Jambres are not ever mentioned in the Old Testament, but their names are found in many Jewish traditions, having been carried down from those Exodus times, though it's not in the Scripture. And those traditions were passed down into Paul and Timothy's time so that there wasn't any doubt who he was talking about. Timothy would get this reference and not blink at all. Oh, Jonas and Jambres, that's, you know. So Paul says that Moses was opposed by these two magicians and in the same way, these selfish creepers oppose the truth. Their deeds and their teachings are in direct opposition to the truth of God and the salvation He has purchased for His people. They've aligned themselves as enemies of the gospel and are openly pushing against it instead of submitting to it and they do that for their own self-pleasure. This makes it clear that these people being referred to here are not believers. They may call themselves believers, but they are not. 
They are men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. Corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. Corrupted in mind means the thoughts that they think have been poisoned and are deadly to those being exposed to those thoughts. And Paul says they're disqualified regarding the faith. That means they don't stand the test of true faith. They're not approved as faithful. They are lost regardless of what they or we think of themselves or even what their captive followers say. They're cheating the truth. And thus they've been disqualified. They're not allowed to play the game anymore. They play their own game, but they will never win the prize that Paul encouraged Timothy to win as an athlete that competes according to the rules. Goodness gracious, this is abysmal, isn't it? It's terrible. It's supposed to feel terrible because it's terrible. It's difficult. But there's some good news. Praise God. But they will not get very far. For their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. After this long, exhausting list of bad, Paul concludes our passage today with a but, thankfully. In spite of all that we've looked at today, as bad as it is, but they will not get very far. Very far in what? very far in their opposition to the truth. Now they may expand and grow and seem wildly successful and prosperous and sell millions of books and buy big arenas where they meet for church. Church. But in their goal to oppose the truth as those who are held captive by the devil to do his will, they will not get very far. Why? For... Their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. With Moses, there came a time in the progression of plagues when the magicians couldn't duplicate the miracles anymore. Look at Exodus 8, 18 and 19. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magicians said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. Gnats are the finger of God. Amen. Amen. Nothing gnaws at me like gnats. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. It was evident to everyone, including the magicians themselves, that it was God's power that they were against and they knew they could not contend with it. In the end, the teachings and the power of Jesus, who is the greater Moses will not be opposed by lesser false teachings or magicians, for their folly will be plain to all. When you hold up their teachings next to the true gospel, it's evident this is not that. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, and these false teachers will be exposed and shown to be the frauds that they are. And we can be sure of this, as sure of this, as we are that the Israelites marched out of Egypt by the powerful hand of God himself. And they did. Yes, difficult times will come, but the Lord of all will deliver us through and out of them all to the praise of his glorious grace. So, we'll turn our attention to application from this passage. That packs a punch. 
that we've dissected. And we're going to look at five H's. Hard haters hate, help, hope. Hard haters hate, help, hope. That's just fun to say. Hard haters hate, help, hope. It's not a sentence. Five application points. First is hard. But understand this, Paul says, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. And he said it to Timothy, who was in the last days as well. So if Timothy was in the, day, in the last days of difficulty, who else is in the last days of difficulty? We are. Understand this. Let me grab you by the shoulders and look directly in your eyes. Understand this. Difficult times will come. Are here. And they're not going to stop until we see Jesus face to face. You ever get discouraged that things are just hard? I do. I got discouraged working this message because doggone it. How long, oh Lord, until you avenge yourself? Until you put evil to bed, send it to hell forever. How long? We're still in the last days and difficult times are still here. And as we'll see in next week's passage, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's not a question of whether the difficult times or the persecution will come. Rather, it's a question of how we will respond to them. Know this, church. That in the last days, difficult times will come. Know this, church. In these last days, difficulty is here. We live in a fallen, sin-infected world that is hard. And it's not all physical beatings and imprisonments, though that might come here too. The real difficulty that Paul's referring to here today is being the true church in the midst of a false and phony church preaching a false and phony gospel. It's harder today to stand up and preach the sound doctrine and the gospel of Jesus Christ and proclaim the Bible as sufficient and right. It's harder today than it was 10 years ago in the public square. Oh, poor us. So hard. Paul's sitting in a prison in Rome waiting for him to chop his head off. Yes, it's hard. Don't be surprised at that. Don't feel like the darkness is winning. Preach the sound doctrine. Preach the biblical gospel. Live a holy life. The Christian life is hard. The world, the flesh, the devil are always pushing and pulling and knocking us down. And sometimes we embrace them. Don't be discouraged by the hard. Be encouraged by it. If it wasn't hard, something's wrong. 
count it all joy. You're like, oh, it's that verse. Oh, my gosh. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Why? For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Who wants to be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing? Why did I talk like that? You know how that happens? Trials. You become perfect and complete, lacking in nothing when you go through trials. The perfect work of trials is that you become perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Because God is conforming you to the image of His Son, who did what? Suffered. Don't be discouraged by the hard. Don't be discouraged by the difficult. Don't be discouraged by the trials. Press into them. Stephen Curtis Chapman wrote a song. This is from 2001, I think. I didn't come looking for trouble, and I don't want to fight needlessly. But I'm not going to hide in a bubble if trouble comes for me. I can feel my heart beating faster. I can tell something's coming down. But if it's going to make me grow stronger, then bring it on. Let the lightning flash. Let the thunder roll. Let the storm winds blow. Bring it on. Let the trouble come. Let the hard rain fall. Let it make me strong. Bring it on. You're looking like, not me, man. <laughs> he goes on to say this. Now, maybe you're thinking I'm crazy and maybe I need to explain some things because I know I've got an enemy waiting who wants to bring me pain. But what he never seems to remember is that what he means for evil, God works for good. So I will not retreat or surrender. Bring it on. Yes. Yes. Let the lightning flash. Let the thunder roll. Let the storm winds blow. Let the trouble come. Let it make me fall on the one who's strong. Bring it on. That's a very Christian attitude. And that's one that the false teachers will not proclaim. They portray you as a victim. You're not a victim. You're an overcomer. And overcomers lean into the heart. And things are hard. So hard. Now, haters. 19 characteristics that we saw today. For people will be, and I won't go through them again. But we've got to identify these people. And the way we do it is by going by this list of characteristics and saying, man, I really see that in that person. Now, not not what they say and what they do, but as I get to know them a little more, it leaks out slowly but surely. And start by trying to identify this in those who are the out front leaders. That's very important. And it may take more than just a casual glance. You're going to have to get to know them. And once you know who they are, We'll get to that in a minute. But don't just take somebody as a leader because they're a leader. Question. Question everything. And watch. I won't mention names because that's not what I'm here to do. One Christian leader, quote, unquote, was said to have said at one point as his ministry was developing and growing, I'm kind of a big deal. Those people hate the gospel that they say they're proclaiming. Watch for the patterns. 
The lead characteristic will be that they love themselves. They talk about themselves. They promote themselves. Look at me. Listen to me. Read my books. My podcast. Now, I'm not saying everybody writes a book or does a podcast is evil. But I'm saying watch out. Watch out especially for those people. They prey on weak, vulnerable people. Make a seed offering. So into my ministry. Identify haters that way. Also, evaluate yourself. Are these characteristics characteristic of me? Look in the mirror first. And if the opposites are true of me, praise God for it, because that's a good goal. I want to be not that. But no, identify the haters. And then what do we do when we identify the haters? We hate them. Paul said, avoid such people. How many times have we seen Paul call directly for people to avoid certain people? Don't be with them. Run from them. Scriptural principle is, hate them. You're like, oh, that ain't nice. That's hateful. There are some things we should hate. We've seen the personal steps of dealing with personal sin. We talked about that the week that we were talking about shunning people. If somebody persists in a sin against you, get to warn them once, warn them twice, third time, have nothing else to do with them. That's the same steps for corporate discipline in Matthew 18. Warn them once, take somebody along. If they don't listen to that, present them before the church. If they don't listen to the church, Go. You're not welcome here. That seems awfully mean. We've got to hate the things that God hates. And we've got to hate the ungodly influence of ungodly people. And we are not to entertain it or them. We are to hate it. Oh, that we would hate the sins and the teachings of these people. You see these magicians making their false snake. Do you love them? Well, we're supposed to love everybody. Do you think Moses said, love you guys? That was neat what y'all did. Wasn't expecting that. And my snake ate your snake. Sorry about that. Your staffs are gone. Love you. See you tomorrow. New plague tomorrow. No, he hated them. Be careful, right? False, phony fakers who oppose the will of God deserve to be hated. Stay with me. Psalm 139, 21. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? That's biblical. And we wrestle not against flesh and blood. These people are held captive by the devil to do his will. We saw last week. And we hate that. We hate it. Should I say, I hate prosperity preacher blank? 
No. Should I say I despise the teaching of prosperity teacher blank? Yes. I hate it. It's anti-Christ. It's not the gospel. It's a false gospel that's leading people to hell. And I hate that. We have an enemy who hates us. Should you hate the devil? Yes, you should hate the devil. Hate him with fierce, intense hatred. Because I promise you he hates you. And he hates God. And God hates him. May your hatred be spirit-empowered to the glory of God. That's hard. If it's fleshly and just get your blood boiling and it's just you, don't do that. Hate the teaching. Hate the false teachers proclaiming that false teacher because you know that ultimately the one pulling their strings is the devil. And hate him. And his false teaching. Hard haters hate. Now help. Oh, thank God. These people have the appearance of godliness, but they deny its power. They're always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. This is not the case for the follower of Jesus Christ. Oh, we have the very Spirit of God to empower us and to teach us. We have God's Spirit to give us power, to give us understanding, to give us everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. Everything we need to understand and apply the Scriptures is given to us by the God's very Spirit whom He has sent to dwell within us, individually and corporately. We have help. Jesus said of the Spirit, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. John 16, when the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for He will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that He will take what is mine and declare it to you. The fullness of Him who fills all in all. Oh, Christian, you're not fighting this fight alone. You're not weak and powerless, pitiable and poor. Unless you turn your eyes off of Jesus, unless you close your eyes to the truth that we have the Holy Spirit of God. So come, open the door, let him in, buy from him with the funds that he's provided, the things that you need to do the things that he's called you to do. We've got everything we need in the Spirit who God has sent in the name of Jesus to do His will. We are not helpless. We have help. And all the help we need. Hard haters hate help and finally hope. But they will not get very far. For their folly will be plain to all. The hissing tongue will be exposed. The disguised wolf will have the fleece removed. 
and it will be evident and plain to all. The serpent will show itself. God will bring everything to light. Luke 12. In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began, Jesus, to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you've said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you've whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. We can look at that and go, oh, no. And Jesus is saying the hypocrisy of the Pharisees will be exposed. And we have that hope. God's going to do that. We do what we can while we're here. And we preach the gospel and condemn false gospels and hate false teachings and teach the pure doctrine. And we know we have the hope that one day everything that was hidden in the deep recesses of these wicked people's hearts is going to be proclaimed from the housetop. We have this hope as well. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. That's hope. Now listen to me. If you're not a Christian, the scriptures say you are an enemy of God. And the justice of God is coming to bring justice against those who have hated him And have not done his will. The justice of God is coming. And is going to bring to light everything that's been hidden. And without Jesus. Without the truth of the gospel. You have no hope. That's bad news. That's as bad as it can be. But. But. God has done something. To bring you out of your hopeless estate. God sent His Son, born of a virgin, who lived a perfect life and who gave up that life on a cross to absorb the wrath of God in your stead for your sins. He died, He was buried, and He came back to life. You're like, I've heard this a million times. You're going to hear it again. He came back to life. And that was God saying, I approve, and this is my Son, And the penalty has been paid. And your call today, unbeliever, is to believe that. To trust that for the payment of your sin debt that you owe to God. And to place your faith in Christ knowing that if you do that, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For God has done what you could have never done yourself. By sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. That's hope. Let's pray. Father, we are in the midst of difficult days, but we are not those who are surprised or count these things as something to be wondered at or marveled at. God, you told us, you've told us for 2,000 years that it was true. And you call us to pay attention to the sound doctrine, the true gospel, in order that the lies of the false teachers might be exposed. And yes, God, things are hard. And there are those who hate you. And we hate those who hate you. And you have given us the help that we need. And you have given us a living hope in the person of Jesus Christ. Now help us, God, to persevere. And you will. 
And we praise you for it and ask you to bring new life, fresh insight, hope, healing for all those who hear these words. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We just stand and receive a benediction. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And all God's people said, Amen. You're dismissed, but stay and eat with us if you can. Oh, I'm sorry. Sit down, y'all. Thank you. We uh, are joyful, joyously, receiving another covenant member here this morning and is a provisional covenant member. Uh, Jordan, would you come on up here? Gentlemen, there's the document. Jordan has said that he does want to submit himself to this fellowship and this leadership as he is here pursuing his education. He's going to be here all summer. Unlike those traitors, Silas and Shaley, who signed a document and then ran off to Kansas City. I hope they're watching this. Um, Jordan's going to be here all summer, and we're glad of that. And he's saying, I want to be a part of this fellowship. And he said this last week, and I'll quote him directly. I want to be discipled. Wake up, men. So this is him verifying that and saying, I want to be a part of this. We are glad. He still blocks me. It's like I'm, I'm, a, I'm on a stand, on a stand, and he still blocks me. He's a big dude. I'm a small dude. I'm a dude. That's true. Son of dude. Um, but we, we're, we're glad, Jordan, to receive you and to have you. So as you sign this document, uh, we're literally, and this sounds silly or cheesy maybe, We're literally pledging our love to one another. That's what we're doing with this covenant. It's a big deal, and it's serious, and it's joyful, and we're glad to do it. Uh, So welcome him, church. Hug his neck if you can reach it, Um, and tell him you're going to be praying for him. And fellas, tell him, I want to disciple you. I I want to love on you and pour myself into you because he's asking for it. You're just asking for it, and we're going to accommodate you. So we're glad to do this. So... Don, Bob, you guys want to pray for him, and then we'll be dismissed to eat. Father, once again, it's a joy to meet together as a community and to love on each other, to hear your word, to rejoice, and uh, to bring glory to your name and all that we do. Father, uh, it's also a joy to welcome a brother into a covenant membership that we can love on him. You want to pray? Yeah, please do. I said Don and Bob. All right, now you're dismissed, but stay and eat with us if you can.